All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here today. And wow, I tell you, after that last talk, I am just sobered. Uh, My daughter is five. My son is eight. And just thinking about what's happening in the world and the rewiring of the brain because of all of the media that uh, kids are watching these days, you know, it's just, it's just scary. It just makes me want to pray and get on my knees and pray and keep praying and keep praying. I pray for my kids day after day, but, you know, what a world that we are living in. I strongly believe that these are the final days. I just can't see it any other way, what's happening with the Supreme Court and the decision that's recently been made. And, and I think that the Trojan horse has come in to the church when it comes to all of the things that, that our kids are watching these days. And we, there's never been a time when we need Jesus more than right now. And I do think that, as we've been hearing, uh, there comes a time when we need to talk about things happening in pop culture because pop culture is influencing our kids. Uh, I gave a a talk on Harry Potter. I've written a number of books on this. We have a lot of resources back there on the table. I was informed before I came here that one of the hopes of my presentations would be really to talk to young people. And so that's why I've included this talk this morning. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about the message of Christ our righteousness. But anyway, we have a lot of resources at the table back there that deal with the occult and deal with the influences Uh, of television and the media and the movies and novels and things that have been just captivating young people. Uh, So we have a a book on called Hour of the Witch that deals with Harry Potter and witchcraft. We have this on DVD. Also, we have a couple of books on the Twilight series, which I'll talk about right now. And going back to the camp meeting, a number of years ago, I was speaking at SoCal Camp Meeting on Harry Potter and its potential influence upon young people. I know it's a controversial subject, you know, is Harry Potter good, bad, or, or indifferent? Hey, kids are reading, you know, they say, isn't that a great thing? Kids are reading. Well, anyway, uh, this boy was listening to my talk, and when it was over, he walked up to me, shook my hand, and he said, Steve, my name is Greg. I am 14 years old. And he said, I grew up in the, in the church, in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he said, for the last two years, I have been practicing, he said, elemental witchcraft the last two years. And he said, but then I read your book, uh, Hour of the Witch. And he said, I'm out. That's what he told me. I'm out. He got in and he got out. And this is a a kid, you know. Now, if you count back, you don't have to be much of a math major to figure out when this boy started practicing witchcraft. If uh, if he'd been doing it for two years and he's out at the age of 14, then when did he get started? At 12. And who knows what kind of influences were leading him to eventually start dabbling. They must have started before he was 12, when he was 11, 10, 9, 8, who knows. And so anyway, uh, we are talking about things that are very relevant to young people outside the church and inside the church. And we need to really explore these issues. Uh, I'm going to talk about something this morning. There you see the title there on the screen, or at least this is the title of one of my books, The Trouble with Twilight. Why Today's Vampire Craze is Hazardous to Your Health. I'm going to talk about vampires. Used to talk about Harry Potter, witches. Now it's vampires, and who knows what's coming. And we need to talk about these things because this is what a lot of kids are getting into. 
Uh, they are. I was at a seminar recently this year in Spokane, Washington, and it, at the end of one of my talks, a woman walked up to me and she said, Steve, please pray for me. She said, my daughter is in the other room, in the mother's room, and she's a vampire. That's what she said. She said she came to the meeting. She didn't really want to you know, listen to your talk. So for this talk, she went into the mother's room. And so I, I said to her, I said, well, let's just pray. Let's pray. So we, we bowed our heads and prayed, and when I was done praying, I opened my eyes and looked up, and there was her daughter. She was right there with her, and she had joined us in the prayer. And the Lord had been speaking to her heart and come to find out that the speakers were on in the mother's room. <laughs> so she could listen, <laughs> and she heard. Uh, I was at another seminar in Florida talking about Twilight, and there were a couple of uh, teenage girls that passed me over in the lobby after my talk. And when I was done, they passed me and they said, Steve, they said, we, we really like Twilight. We love Twilight. And then they said, and we just heard your talk and we just thought to ourselves, and then she just, this is what she did. She went, ah, we just heard your talk and ah. So she had been impressed. Uh, I was speaking also at an academy, I think it was Ozark Academy, and I found out from the chaplain the Adventist chaplain, that after church, the kids just leave the church and they're reading Twilight. They're reading the Twilight series. So what we're talking about this morning is something that is very, very relevant. And I want to make it clear and plain that I am not on a crusade with a stake to stab in the heart uh, those who happen to have gotten into the Twilight series and who like the books and the movies. Uh, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to share information that is very important and very powerful. And I know that we're in a spiritual conflict, and so I want to pray again before we launch in. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. And then I think when we're done, we're going to all, at least if you can, not right now, but when we're done, I feel impressed that we need to spend a little bit of time kneeling and, and praying some more. So I know it's not easy for some of you, but if you can, at the end, we'll have another prayer, and we, we will kneel if possible. So let's pray right now and just talk to Jesus. Lord Jesus Christ, what a world we live in. We've been hearing uh, powerful information about the media and about the brain and, and also about health and the body and the mind. And now we're here again to look at the Bible and to look at one of the most popular series of books and movies that has just taken especially the teenage world by storm. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will be here and help us. Help me as I dive into this. Please, Jesus, please talk to our minds, talk to our consciences, and help us to understand what we are about to look at, every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the trouble with twilight. Let's start by opening our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Exodus, chapter 12. And while you're doing that, let me click my little clicker here and show you a picture of a couple of young people who are the stars of the Twilight series. Here is a quote from Fox TV and from Hollywood.com that the Twilight series has become the most epic romance since the Titanic. The coolest movie of the year. 
first film came out there November 21, 2008. Uh, if you are familiar with this or if you're not, uh, I'll just tell you that Twilight has become a huge craze that has taken the teenage world by storm. There are books, movies, DVDs, posters, buttons, T-shirts, lunchboxes, conferences, and even cruises. Twilight Cruises, where people pay a lot of money and they go on these uh, boats and people uh, dress like the Twilight characters. The last movie came out November 16 of last year. This is one of the websites of the Twilight series. It was Breaking Dawn, Breaking Dawn Part 2, that came out. And I tell you, it was a, a huge box office success. I'll tell you a couple facts in a minute. Our ministry has a website that we've created, and so it's pretty easy to discover how we feel about this subject, and it's called avoidtwilight.com. Pretty easy to remember, avoidtwilight.com. We also have another website that is avoidharrypotter.com. We have a lot of websites, and we're trying to get these websites out so that people will take a look at the information that we are trying to share with young people, teenagers, 20-somethings and on up and all the way up to the grandmas and the grandpas. But the first, before we really go into this, I want to take a look at some Bible verses and start out by showing you what the Bible says about blood. Blood is mentioned a lot in God's book. In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 12, this was the climax, this was the last plague that hit the Egyptians. God said in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. I don't know if you've put the pieces together or not yet, but uh, Wahlberg, my last name, is a Jewish name. We have a lot of Jewish roots behind us, although I grew up in the Hollywood Hills and our family was rather secular, very secular, but still the Jewishness was there, and if you go back all the way back to Bible times and to the Old Testament time, the nation of Israel was literally born on, on the night when God passed through Egypt, when the 10th plague hit the Egyptians. They were born, Israel was born under the sign of the blood. And I've often thought about this, that if I was the firstborn Jewish boy or Hebrew boy of my family, and if I was living in Egypt and God told Moses to tell my family that we needed, we needed to put blood outside of our houses on the top and on the sides of the door because tonight the angel of death is going to be passing through. And if there's no blood on the door, then the firstborn is going to die. And I am the firstborn of my, of my mother. And I've thought about that, and I've thought, if I was living back there in Egypt, I would tell my dad, Dad, you make sure you put lots of blood on that door. Let's not take any chances. That's for sure. So blood. And God said, when I see that blood, I'm going to pass over your home when I strike the land of Egypt. 
the blood on the doors of Egypt represented whose blood? That's right. It represented the coming of the Savior and the blood of Jesus Christ. And I call this the protecting blood. The protecting blood. When you go down through Old Testament history and New Testament history, history, there's a lot of references to blood. And I'll just give you these quickly. We don't have to look up all these texts. But Leviticus 16, verse 15, talks about how the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take blood and he would go into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood with his finger on top of a golden lid, which was called the mercy seat. And underneath that mercy seat was the Ten Commandments. And the cleansing of the Israelites came as a result of that blood. And I call that the cleansing blood. We have the protecting blood in Egypt and the cleansing blood on the Day of Atonement. Matthew 26, verse 27, Jesus said the night before he died, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The forgiving blood of Jesus. Jesus basically said that all of the sacrifices of the past, every lamb that was ever slain in Israel, all of that blood pointed forward to his sacrifice and to the blood that he was going to shed on the cross so that we could be forgiven for our sins. The forgiving blood of Jesus. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul wrote that the church of God is purchased by the blood, by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 1, verse 5 says that Jesus loves us and he has washed us from our sins in his own blood. Washed in the blood, purchased by the blood, forgiven through the blood, cleansed by the blood, the protecting blood. Now here's one more verse. Go to Revelation chapter 12 and look at verse 11. Actually, let's start with verse 10. Revelation 12, verse 10, and, and if, if you read Revelation chapter 12 carefully, you discover that this chapter is a, is a war chapter. It's probably the main chapter in Revelation that deals with war and conflict and battle. It starts out in verse 7 with, there was war in heaven, and the war came down here to this earth, and war's been going on down throughout history. When Jesus died, in verse 10, it says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, who is the accuser of the brethren? It's Satan. We know that from verse 9. Verse 9 says the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So the devil was kicked out of heaven and when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the accuser of our brethren has been cast down because he accuses us day and night before God. Now think about that. Satan accuses us. If you were to be brought to the throne of heaven, which were actually not there during the judgment, but were represented as being there. If you were to be brought before the throne and the devil stood there as your prosecuting attorney and looked at the father and looked at you and said, Father, how can you save this person? They've done this and this and this and this and this. 
Look at all the video games they've watched. Look at all the wasted time. Look at all the sins that they've committed. All the pornography, the lusts. Um, you, you know your sins. I know my sins. We all have a past somewhere. Uh, and if the devil were to look at God and then point to you and say, how can you let this person into heaven? They've done this and this and this. They've had other gods. They've had idols. They've taken God's name in vain. They've broken the Sabbath. They've dishonored their father and mother. They've either hated or committed adultery or been sexually immoral. They've stolen. They've lied. They've coveted. They haven't loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and their neighbor as themselves. That's a quick overview of the Big Ten. And Satan were just to look right at you and say, you've done all those things. And say, God, how can you let this person into heaven? They've done this and this and this. And the Bible says that Satan accuses us before God day and night. Then my, my question to you is, what would your answer be? Would you say, uh, Lord, I didn't do all those things. I didn't. I'm, I'm innocent. Would that be your response? Now, here's the devil, here's God, and here's you. You know, how, how would you respond to that kind of accusation? What would you say? How are you going to get out from underneath the accusations of sin and Satan on the day of judgment? Well, there really is only one argument that we've got. One argument. And the argument is in the next verse. Verse 11. Verse 11 gives us the argument against the devil and his accusations. Verse 11 says, They overcame him. And the him is Satan, the accuser. They overcame him by what means? By the blood of the lamb. That's right. And by the word of their testimony. They speak about this blood. They acknowledge this blood. And they love not their lives to the death. Powerful verse. This verse tells us in the heart of the book of Revelation, which is the same chapter that eventually leads to the remnant, that God has a remnant people. This, ver this verse tells us that we can overcome the devil through the blood of the Lamb. So how important is the blood of Jesus? Now what this basically means is to overcome by the blood of the Lamb basically means that we can... And if I was standing before the throne, which I know I'm not going to do physically until I get to heaven, but in this hour of judgment, I get down on my knees and I acknowledge to God that, yes, I have committed these sins. I have done this and this and this and this. And I, I just, you know, I own up to it. Uh, I was watching my little boy from the vantage point of my office window just a couple days ago. And I was looking out the window, and I saw him on the trampoline. Seth and one of his friends, they were bouncing around, and he decided to jump up, and he grabbed onto one of the bars that holds the net that surrounds the trampoline. And he just grabbed onto it, and when he did it, one of the bungee cords broke, and the net fell onto the trampoline. And, and he, his conscience told him, I probably shouldn't have been doing that, and then he looked over and he saw the office window where I'm sitting 
And he, uh, he slipped out from a little hole in the corner of the trampoline, slipped out, and then ran into the field. That's what he did. He just took off. And I thought, thought about that, and I thought, all right, Lord, I need to talk to Seth about how to handle it when he's done something he shouldn't do, and, and what should he do? So later on that afternoon when I walked in, he looked over at me to see, was I mad or not? And I try to be very patient with my, my kids, and I wasn't mad at him, but I, I talked to him about that. I said, Seth, you know, we need to talk about that. I said, I saw you. I saw you break the bungee cord, and I saw you go down through that hole. And you know you shouldn't be going down through that hole because there's a couple of uh, springs that are broken, and that hole is a weak spot, and I've told you to stay away from that hole. So he went right down through it and then ran away. And I said, Seth, I saw the whole thing. And he said, yeah, Dad, I know. And I, said, and I talked to him, and I said, basically, Seth, you know, what should you do when you've done something? And I know it was an accident. I said, I'm not mad. But what should you do when you've do something that, you know, your conscience tells you you shouldn't have done. You know, should you run away from that? Or should you admit it and own up to it? And he got the message. And then I asked him to repeat it and tell me what he should do. You know, expression deepens impression, as they say. And so he, he said, Dad, I know. I, when I do something wrong, I should just admit it. I should just admit it. And I told him, I said, the best thing to do is not to do anything wrong. But if you do do something wrong, then the next best best thing to do is to admit it. Admit it. And anyway, uh, my point is that when we've done things wrong, which we know we've done, we get on our knees and we acknowledge that before God. And we say, Lord, I, I have done these things. I'm sorry. I ask you to forgive me. And then... What, what Jesus wants us to do is to say something like, Lord, I know I've sinned, but I trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for every single sin I've ever committed. He died for them all. And God, I, I trust in Jesus and his sacrifice and in the blood that he shed for me. Now, I don't know all the mechanics of why it is that the blood of Christ is so powerful, but I've come to the conclusion that it represents the power of his sacrifice. It represents the worthiness of his sacrifice. It was the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and mine. And when he died on the cross for all of our sins and he shed his blood, that sacrifice and that blood is enough. It is enough to get us into heaven. It is enough for us to rely on and to be forgiven for all of our sins. Praise the Lord. So I can say and you can say, God, I accept that I've done wrong. I'm sorry for that. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to do these things anymore. And I trust in Jesus and in his blood that was shed for me. And if you'll do that simple thing before God on your knees and acknowledge what you've done and trust in Jesus as your Savior, what does the Bible say? What does Revelation say? Revelation 12, 11 says they overcame him. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to the death. 
The blood of Jesus Christ is powerful. The devil hates that blood. He knows its power. And the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, says that God can cleanse our conscience by the blood of Christ. So that when we you know, have guilt, we can confess and trust in Jesus' blood and something mysterious happens and the conscience gets clean. The guilt goes away. We feel like we're forgiven. And forgiveness is a wonderful reality. It's a wonderful thing. It, it can affect your whole life. It can affect your health. Having a clean conscience um, is, is a wonderful tonic to bless the whole body. <laughs> it's tremendous in its ability to change your life. Having a clean conscience, you can go to bed at night and know that I'm not guilty anymore because Jesus has forgiven me. I tell you, the devil hates the blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't he? See this picture there? You've got Jesus on the one side, Satan on the other side. Satan hates the blood of Jesus with a passion. And he's, a, he's, a, he's an angry being. He's full of angry. He's full of hate. Revelation 12 tells us that in verse 12, that he is very angry, that he's come down with great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And he, he's also a being that can get very, very frightened. He is terrified when people choose to humble themselves, which is what he didn't do in heaven, and to trust in Jesus Christ and in his blood and turn away from sin. He's terrified of that because he knows that if, if enough people start doing that around the world, then the countdown will begin toward his non-existence. And he's, he's just totally uh, freaked out about that. He, he can hardly handle that. He hates the blood of Jesus, and he's trying to do everything he can to direct people away from the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe that in his secret council meetings, when he has his camp meetings with his angels, and they discuss and strategize and plan that they specifically implement strategies to mesmerize the mind and to turn people away from the blood of Jesus Christ. That's part of, part of their goal. All right, now let's shift back over into the Twilight series. This is the main website of a lady named Stephanie Meyer. Stephanie Meyer is the author of the Twilight series. Now let me tell you how the whole Twilight series began. Uh, let me just first ask you, how many of you have heard of Twilight before? Okay, just about all of you. All right, next question, a little bit harder. How many of you know where or how the Twilight series actually started? Where it actually began? Okay, there's just, just a few hands. Probably, maybe you've read my book on this. Maybe. Anyway, uh, we have a little book and a bigger book. The little book is easy to share, and the bigger book has a lot more information. And here, I'll tell you how it happened. It started on the night of June 1, 2003, on a dark night. Stephanie... Meyer, Mormon lady, married, three children, living near Phoenix, went to bed and had a dream. And this is what she says about her dream. And it's right there embedded into the website, how the series started. It's not quoted there, but you can click around and you can find Stephanie telling this story. She said, I woke up on that June 2nd, 
from a very vivid dream. In my dream, two people were having an intense conversation in a meadow, in the woods. One of these people was just your average girl. The other person was fantastically beautiful, sparkly, and a vampire. They were discussing the difficulties inherent in the fact that A, they were falling in love with each other, while B, the vampire was particularly attracted to the scent of her blood. And he was having a difficult time restraining himself from killing her immediately. That was the dream. When she woke up from that dream, uh, all of a sudden she had this compulsion that she needed to write out the storyline of what she had seen. And she continues on, listen to what she says. She says, at this time, in those early days, when she was compelled to go to the computer and start typing, she said, at this time, Bella, which was the name she gave to the girl, and Edward, that was the boy, they were, Edward and Bella, at this time, were quite literally voices in my head. They simply would not shut up. I'd stay up as late as I could. I could stand it, trying to get all the stuff in my mind typed out on my computer. And then I would crawl exhausted back into bed, only to have another conversation start in my head. Something was going on inside her brain after this dream. I hated to lose anything by forgetting, so I would get up and I would head back down to the computer. And she would start typing, typing and typing and typing and typing. Eventually, a manuscript developed, which was not called Twilight. It was called Corpse. That was, she, she picked the name Corpse for the original title of the first Twilight series, Twilight book. And she, uh, she realized, okay, now I've got this book, this manuscript, and this voice is compelling me to go forward with getting this into print. But I've never, I don't know how to publish a book. I've never written anything. I'm not a published author. What do I do? So she went on the internet and she started typing in, how do you publish a book? This was a, a, a wannabe writer, mother, who was totally unknown. How do you get a book published? And she started learning and reeling, reading, and she discovered she needed to get the manuscript together and send it out to different publishers and see if they would review it and if they would like it. And eventually, uh, if they would give her a contract to publish the book. And so she sent out about 15 manuscripts. And it wasn't long until she got a major response from a, a big book producer called Little Brown and Company, a major a publisher of books in the United States. And they liked her manuscript and sent her, I believe it was a $250,000 contract that they would be the publisher of this book. Wow. And she was just uh, shocked by this, as you can imagine. And it was all happening very, very fast. And so the publisher took over. They changed the name from Corpse, because they didn't think it would really be a big seller, that title, and so they changed the name to Twilight. And the first book came out, and it went to the top of the New York Times best-selling list. Can you imagine that? And it was so popular that another book came out as a sequence to this, which was called... Uh, what's the title there? You know, it's been a while since I've talked about this. We've got Eclipse and Breaking Dawn as the third, the third book. New Moon, that's it. New Moon, there's Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and Breaking Dawn. And Breaking Dawn was eventually made into two movies. But let me, let me back up and give you some background on this. These books became so popular that a production house called Summit Entertainment 
decided to take a chance and take the first novel, make it into a movie, and see if it would generate an income. And so they did. So the first movie came out in November of 2008, and it brought in $70 million opening weekend. Wow. So Summit got together immediately. Their executives sent out a press release and said, we're going to make all of Stephanie Meyer's books into, into movies. They saw the dollars rolling. So the second movie came out on... What's the date on that? It was a year later, November of 2009, and it brought in $140 million opening weekend, twice as much. The third movie came out June 30, 2010, and it brought in over $68 million the first night, just one night. The fourth, and the, actually they divided the fourth into two movies, came out uh, last year, November 11, November 16, November 16, 2012, and it brought in $340 million worldwide. So from book to book to book, it just was going off the chart. And of course, this made Stephanie Meyer extremely wealthy, and the series really became a household name. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. And actually, before I switch this slide, if you can look carefully, this is the first Twilight book. And notice it says twilight there. And look at the, the graphic. It, are, it, it shows two hands, two tempting hands, holding an apple. Where does that imagery come from? It comes from the Bible. Now, I don't have my twilight copy right here, but imagine this was the twilight book. When you open up the twilight book, the first book, and turn like four pages in, there is a blank page... And there, right in the middle of the page, is a Bible verse. A Bible verse. And the verse is Genesis 2, verse 17, that says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. That verse is a standalone verse at the beginning of the first Twilight book. Now, why would that be? Why did the publisher and the author choose to put that text at the beginning? Well, I'll tell you the reason. And here's, here's a picture of uh, Robert Pattinson, who plays Edward Cullen. He's the actor that they casted. And Kristen Stewart, who plays Isabella Swan. These are the two stars of the show that have been casted to play the roles in the movie from what Stephanie Meyer saw in her dream. That's how it happened. Now, Robert Pattinson or, or Edward Cullen in the series, uh, this boy, he's a vampire. He's a, a 108-year-old vampire that's frozen in a teenage body. And Isabella Swan, she's just a normal 17-year-old girl. They meet at, in Forks, Washington, which is a real town. They meet inside the high school, which is a real high school. And the, as the story develops, Bella finally discovers that her, um, at first it's her boyfriend, and eventually, finally, it becomes her husband, that her boyfriend is not just a normal boy, that he's, he's a vampire. He's one of what they call the cold ones, because his skin is very, very cold. But he's very handsome. He's a nice guy. He has a lot of good qualities. Uh, believe it or not, he is a vegetarian. Now, that doesn't mean that he eats tofu burgers. <laughs> Let me clarify that. Him being a vegetarian means 
that he is a vegetarian vampire who does not drink human blood. He and his family, the Cullen family, have resisted those tendencies, by and large, and they have become good vampires with consciences, and they only drink the blood of animals. They refuse to do anything bad. And so uh, Robert Pattinson, or Edward Cullen, he's a good vampire, he's handsome, he's a vegetarian. As the story develops, he discovers that there are bad vampires that are trying to kill his girlfriend. And so his, uh, his manly traits kick in, and he protects his lover throughout the series. And eventually, uh, they get married, and they quote-unquote live happily ever after. And so the basic story, that's the basic storyline. It's the good vampires against the bad vampires, and Edward Cullen is the best vampire of all. Now, back to the slide here. Why did they put that Bible text, and why do you have two tempting hands showing forbidden fruit? Well, here's the reason. The reason is, in spite of the fact that Edward Cullen is a good guy, he is still a vampire. He still drinks blood. He still is, in many ways, involved in the occult. And the basic idea is this, that Edward Cullen represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He represents good qualities combined with evil. When he first saw Bella in the cafeteria, it says he looked over at her with a, with a, with a sly uh, smile and a wicked glint in his eyes. And so Stephanie Meyer portrays this boy as having a lot of good qualities, but he still has evil inside of him as well. He is still a vampire. He is like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the knowledge of good and evil. Now, how does the devil try to trick people to get involved in evil? Does he just give them evil, or does he mix good and evil? See, that's the way the devil works. It reminds me of fishing. I used to fish a lot, and I used to catch trout. I was a big trout fisherman. And the best way to catch a trout is to take a good worm. And it's a good worm. I mean, it's, you know, nothing wrong with that worm. Worms are great in the garden. <laughs> they help the soil. And anyway, um, you take a good worm and you put it on a hook and you throw it into a hole when you're trout fishing. And the fish comes along and he sees that perfectly good worm. But he doesn't see the hook that's inside the worm or underneath the worm. And so he bites. And then if you're lucky, then the next thing uh, the fish knows is he's in the frying pan in a little while. And he, he's caught by the combining of good with the hook. Get it? That's the way the devil works. So Jesus is not only a fisher of men, but Satan's a fisher, a fisher of men too. And he knows that if he, can, if he can combine good and evil, that's the best way to seduce us. And then the good, he starts with good, brings in the evil, and then the good gets less and the evil gets more. And eventually, you're hooked on, on the evil. And in the Twilight series, Edward Cullen represents that fruit. And the basic idea of the series is, now don't miss this, is that eating forbidden fruit is really a good thing. At the end of the Twilight series, Bella becomes a vampire herself. And she, 
she uh, is very excited about that, and it results in a lot of good things. Where's my quote? I've got a quote here somewhere of what she said. Uh, I don't know if I can find it, but I'll probably remember it. The last movie that came out, Breaking Dawn Part 2, where is that quote? Finds Bella becoming a vampire herself, finally. Because she has a baby, and she's just about to die during childbirth because the baby is a half-vampire, half-human baby, and in order to protect his wife from eventually now dying uh, as, a, as a mortal, he finally bites her, which is what he's resisted for four books. He finally bites her, turns her into a vampire, and they both live happily ever after. And when she's a vampire in the last uh, book and in the last movie, she's just, she has all these supernatural powers. And, she, and here's the quote, if I can remember it. She says, and I, and I watched this in the trailer, she said, my days as a human are over. She said, I've never felt more alive. She said, I was born to be a vampire. That's what she says. And she's just so, she's got supernatural powers. She's beautiful. She's, uh, she now, she lives forever. And the whole st- series basically gives you the impression that eating the forbidden fruit really is a good thing. It's going to give you supernatural powers. You're going to live a long time, maybe even forever. It's just a very positive thing. And that is the message of the Twilight series. That's the underlying message. Now, do you think that's a good message or a bad message? Uh, there are teenage girls. The girls especially like the Twilight series because they really have just, they just love it. Uh, Robert Pattinson. They really like him. And he's, you know, he's a good-looking guy. Now, I'm not saying that because I like guys. I don't like guys. But just because I recognize, you know, that that's the way he is. And the girls like him. And anyway, um, there are teenage girls that wear T-shirts promoting the Twilight series. Real T-shirts, real girls. And the T-shirts say, forbidden fruit tastes the best. Forbidden fruit tastes the best. So that is, uh, you know, some people say to me, they say, Steve, hey, Twilight really is a good series because they don't have sex until they get married. Isn't that a good example for teenagers? And I think to myself, you know, well, that is a good thing for teenagers to know that they should wait until they marry, until they get married, because uh, Edward Cullen and Isabella Swan waited until they got married. But the reality is that there's a whole lot of other things that are woven in. So you've got the good and the bad combined when uh, when. Bella first first starts dating Edward. She's living in Forks, Washington. Her dad and her mom are divorced, and her dad is a police officer, and she's very hesitant to tell her father about her new boyfriend because she knows, and her mother too, she knows that if mom and dad knew that I was dating a vampire, they probably wouldn't be pleased. And so she, she hides that from them for a while. There's a lot of lessons that are communicated through the Twilight series. Now, here's something very significant. When the first Twilight movie came out in November of 2008, it was a huge box office success. Right after the film opened, Sean Hannity on Fox News did a report, did a little story called Night Neighbors. And you can find this actually on YouTube. Uh, There it is, Night Neighbors, and it says, Members of America's vampire subculture could be living right under your nose. And what Sean basically does in this report on Fox News is he shows that vampirism has crossed over from the fantasy world into the real 
lives of many teenage girls. And he interviews this lady, Michelle Bellinger. She is a vampire expert. She's written numerous books. There it is, Hannity's America. And Michelle Bellinger, lo and behold, is a vampire herself. She's what they call a psychic vampire. Psychic vampires try to gather energy from people, whereas uh, the other vampires actually drink blood. And there's a lot of them that do. And she's representing... Uh, the, the vampire community, and she talks to the media. She goes on television, she's on the radio, and she's trying to educate society to realize that vampirism really is not a bad thing, that you can be a vampire, and, and it's a good thing. Uh, she talks about, and, and, and Sean talked about, people who are actually drinking blood. Now, they try to have standards and rules that if you're going to drink blood, at least it should be, you know, you should use sanitary instruments, you should have a donor that has mutual consent and so that you do everything right. And they, are, they become blood drinkers. Here is an article that came out in the wake of the second Twilight film called Fangs for the Tickets, vampire film Frenzy. Frenzy came out in Australia, the Sunday Mail, Queensland, Australia, November 15, 2009. And, at the end, and it basically said that, that uh, the Twilight movies have become more popular than Harry Potter or Ben-Hur. There's no film in Australia that has become more popular than Twilight. And at the end of the article, it says here, Twilight hysteria is also being blamed for a plethora of clans appearing in Australia. Groups of self-professed blood, bloodthirsty vampires conduct rituals once a month across Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria. One member, 40-year-old Mark, who did not want his surname published, claims to consume blood on a regular basis. We're real, we're alive, we live, we work in cities, we hold jobs, we're your next-door neighbor, we have families, but we just have a different understanding, he said. So here's an article, and Sean Hannity's whole program is basically designed to show that there's a growing vampire community. It's not just uh, Twilight, it's not just media, it's not just movies, it's not just novels, that it's happening in the real world. And the basic idea is... Um, that people's bodies and souls are deficient and that we need to supplement our diet. And one of the best ways to supplement your diet and to get energy into your life is by drinking a little bit of blood. That's what they say. That it's good for you. It's good for your soul. It's like vitamin. Like vitamin C. Drink blood. And what's happening is that people are learning this and they're watching Edward Cullen the super cool, nice guy vampire, and they're going, you know, man, this is something that maybe, uh, maybe I should check out. Something I should check out. It's very easy to go from a movie and a novel to the internet and start clicking around, and before you know it, you'll find all kinds of sites that teach kids how to become vampires. Uh, I remember when, they, when the first Harry Potter book came out, and I began writing on this for Amazing Facts. Amazing Facts uh, contacted me one day and said, Steve, we're getting a lot of calls about uh, Harry Potter, and people want to know, should my kids be reading this or not? Is it good or bad? And they said, we have nothing on this. We don't have anything. Would you be willing to research this and write a book on this? So I finally decided after praying that I would. And I remember when the first book came out, the second Harry Potter book, uh, I started, and my book came out, I started doing radio interviews. I've been on all kinds of shows, hundreds of shows discussing a whole host of topics. 
That's part of what White Horse Media does, is we've, we've learned how to get on the radio and how to talk to talk show hosts about issues that are relevant in our world. And I remember when I first started telling hosts and listeners that I was concerned that the Harry Potter series, because you have a good wizard named Harry who fights the bad wizard, Voldemort, and kids are reading, they're entering a fantasy world, and it really makes witchcraft look really pretty cool. You've got, you know, Harry's a good wizard, not a bad wizard, and he has supernatural powers. He can cast spells. He can change things. And I said that these, this kind of material is going to result in the kids getting interested in the craft. That's what I said. And people thought, that's crazy. This is just fantasy. It's just a, it's just a novel. They're not going to get into the real thing. And then I observed that as time went on, the next book, the next book, the next book, and, and witchcraft became more, uh, more pronounced in the media and in society, that then people were calling into the shows and then instead of saying, it's crazy, your idea that, that Harry Potter is going to lead to witchcraft, that's crazy. Now they were saying, what's wrong with witchcraft anyway? That's what they were saying. And then, and then people that were into Wicca, which is a religion that practices witchcraft, they would call in the show. And they would say, uh, you don't understand, we're, we're practicing white magic. We're good. We're just accessing the forces of nature and channeling them for good purposes. We're not doing anything bad. And I, and I watched this trend. And then when, when Twilight came out, I thought to myself, here you've got Harry Potter and you've got all these kids that are actually getting into witchcraft. Like Greg, you know, this 14-year-old boy. And I, and I just looked at that and I said, you know, the same thing's going to happen with Twilight. You're going to see kids going on the Internet, clicking around, and wanting to get involved in real vampirism. I saw it coming. And that's exactly what's happening. It's exactly what's happening. Like that lady said to me at my seminar in Spokane, she said, my daughter's a vampire. Now, here's something really scary. I don't want to scare you too much, but here's something really scary. You know, the devil has a plan in all of this. He makes Harry Potter the good guy who practices witchcraft. And then kids, many of them, not all of them, but many of them want to check out witchcraft. Then he has vampirism, where Edward Cullen is a good vampire. And then kids want to start checking out uh, vampirism. Now, you know what the next step is? I, I just, you know, I shudder to think about it, but I'm going to tell you. You want to know? There are a number of novels out there, which I think are, they're becoming very popular, and they're probably going to become movies, at least one of them, where in the, in the world of, of fallen angels who have been kicked out of heaven, there are some of them that are good demons as compared to bad demons. So now you've got the demons that are good demons and bad demons. And the good demons can enter your life and, and cooperate with you and help you improve your life and to gain supernatural power to go against evil. So what's going to happen is, just as kids were checking out good witchcraft, quote-unquote, and then good vampirism, quote-unquote, the next step is for them to start opening their hearts to what they think are good demons, good demons, and letting them in and thinking that that's going to help them in their lives. Can you see where all of this is going? Can you see this? 
It's very, very scary to think of what is actually happening. That's where the devil is going. Here's a Bible verse in the book of Leviticus 19, verse 26. The Bible not only talks about blood representing the blood of Jesus, but it also talks about the pagan practice of drinking blood or ingesting blood. And here, look at this. God told the Israelites, he said, you shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying, Leviticus 19.26 in the New King James Version. Now, this verse, what it's doing is it's connecting ingesting blood with occultism. Did you see that? Right there in the Bible. And when you do your homework on this, you discover that those that are involved in, in, uh, in blood drinking are also permeated with the occult. They go together. And if you look at the Twilight series, guess what? It's exactly the same thing in the Twilight series. Edward Cullen, the good vampire, he also, he reads minds. He has the ability to read minds, except for Bella. He can't read her mind. It frustrates him to no end. He's also a member of, of a coven. He's a coven member of the Olympic coven. And there's lots of covens, even among the good vampires in the Twilight series. There is what's called shape-shifting involved, where uh, humans turn in to animals, werewolves, and back. And so if you look at the Twilight series, woven throughout the, in the entire series, even among the good guys, the good werewolves and the good vampires, you've got occultism and supernatural powers that are very carefully and attractively presented to make occultism look really good. That's what's happening in the Twilight series. And like I mentioned, at the end of the series, Isabella Swan, eventually her red eyes, shows that she now has become a vampire herself. And she thoroughly enjoys it. She loves being a vampire. She says, I was born to be a vampire. This is fabulous. I've got supernatural powers, and I'm going to live forever. And there's a whole lot of uh, young people that are looking at that and going, wow. You know, that's, that just sounds pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. And so they're, they're getting in. Now, here's something very, very interesting that most people have, have never heard. Those that are into the Twilight series, they've just never understood this. And I think this is probably the one reason why those teenagers at the back of the church said to me, we heard your talk and we went, we went, ah, we can't believe the information that you're sharing. Well, here's the information. Mrs. Meyer, Stephanie Meyer, not only had one dream that started the Twilight series, the whole series originated in a dream. She eventually had a second dream later on after the first book was published. And it's a little bit uh, hard for you to read this, but I will, I'll read it for you. Stephanie Meyer said, I actually did have a dream after Twilight was finished of Edward coming to visit me. So the good vampire comes back in a second dream. And then... She said, only I had gotten it wrong. And he did drink blood like every other vampire. And you couldn't live on animals the way I had written it. We had this conversation, and he was terrifying. That's what she said. So what happened basically was this, this uh, spirit that was a voice in her head that was compelling her 
to start writing out the Twilight series. When she wrote it, she put some of her own ideas in there, and she made uh, Edward Cullen out to be a good vampire who doesn't drink human blood. And after the book was published, that spirit came back to her in a dream. And that spirit basically said, you've got it wrong. I am not a vegetarian vampire. I don't like the way you have twisted my script. And I'm not happy about this. And she says, we had this conversation, and he was terrifying. So it's like he dropped his mask, and she saw the real, the real spirit that gave her the first dream. And he was frightening, and he was, he was evil. Where did the Twilight series come from anyway? Do you think that was an angel from God? A good angel? Do you think that, uh, you know, the Lord gave Stephanie Meyer that first dream? No. When you put the pieces together, it's very, very clear who is behind this series. And I have no doubt that in the councils of the Prince of Darkness, that the whole Twilight series originated straight from demons, straight from a conversation that Satan had with his angels on trying to lead a generation of young people farther and farther away from the Lord and from the power of Jesus Christ's blood. I don't know if if you've ever thought about this, but the name Harry Potter, what is a potter anyway? Do you know that the potter is mentioned in the Bible? God said, I am the potter. And you are the clay. And what do potters do? They mold. They mold clay. And Harry Potter. And by the way, uh, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Potter series, where did she get the idea to write Harry Potter in the first place? It wasn't a dream, but it was more like a vision. She was on a train outside of London, very poor. She had a little girl. She was basically practically on welfare. And she had this vision on this train where this person of Harry Potter just walked right into her head. She says, he walked right into my head. He was a wizard who didn't know he was a wizard, and that's what led her to write the entire Harry Potter series. So Mrs. Rowling got it in a a revelation. Stephanie Meyer got it in a dream. And the Harry Potter series, Potter, is is a molding influence. And I have no doubt in my mind, and the facts bring this out, that uh, Harry Potter is part of a plan to mold a generation toward the occult. I was on a radio show in Seattle called Live from Seattle with a talk show host named uh, Thor Tolo. And I remember discussing this on the air. He was supposed to have me on for about 45 minutes, and he kept me on for uh, almost two hours because people were calling the show wanting to talk. And one lady called the show, and I still remember her. Her name was Melissa. She called the radio show, and she said, I'm I'm a mother, and here's my story. She said, my my, uh, daughter, we're, we're a Christian family, but my daughter went out and read the first Harry Potter book, unknown to me. And then she went back to the bookstore, and she started buying books on Wicca, on witchcraft. She went from Harry Potter to witchcraft. And then uh, Melissa said that my daughter, that strange things started happening to my daughter. 
very scary things in her room at night. And so eventually the daughter came to the mom, and the mother's telling us this on the radio. And the, and the daughter said, uh, or the mother said that my daughter came to me and told me. She said, Mom, I'm scared. Something's happening to me. Something, there's scary things happening in my life. And the mother said, well, what's going on? And then she divulged the fact that she had been reading Harry Potter. And then she was reading witchcraft books, real witchcraft books. She went from Harry Potter to witchcraft, this girl. And the mother said that resulted in a mother-daughter conversation, heart to heart. And my daughter, my 14-year-old daughter, gave up uh, reading witchcraft books and reading Harry Potter. She got rid of those books. And she rededicated her life to the Lord. And I can tell you lots of stories like that. So I have no doubt in my mind that Harry Potter is influencing many, not everyone, but many to check out the occult. And the devil has a strategy behind all of this. He has a strategy. We already read Exodus 12, verse 13. When I see the blood, God said, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be upon you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let me see how many of you are, are real Bible students of the book of Revelation. There, are, there were 10 plagues in Egypt. How many plagues are there in Revelation 16? Seven, right. Seven in Revelation, 10 in Egypt. And if you compare the 10 plagues with the seven, seven last plagues, which are coming, the 10 plagues are behind us, but the seven plagues are ahead of us. And you compare those plagues, they're very similar. In both sets, the water turns to blood. In both sets, there's hail. In both sets, there's darkness. In both sets, there's boils. So they're very similar. In other words, after the final crisis in the future, God is once again going to send plagues upon this earth, just like he did in the land of Egypt. Now, here's the key question. What was it that, at the very end, that protected the people of God from the final 10th plague of the angel of death. It was the blood of the lamb that pointed forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. And God knows and the devil knows that as we near the close of time, we need the blood of Jesus Christ. It is what is going to protect us when the final crisis hits. We need to be under that blood. Our families need to be under that blood. We need to be following the Bible. We need to be learning about Jesus and trusting in what he says in his word. And the devil knows all about that. And he is trying through entertainment, through Hollywood, and through whatever ways that he can to divert our minds away from the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he's trying to do. Divert us away from Jesus' blood. And he wants to, you know, even get us into a counterfeit blood and to drinking blood and into occultism. I mean, he's just, you know, he's pulling out all the stops. He's doing whatever, whatever he can possibly do. He's trying to do it. Uh, I know, as I get down near the end of this talk, I know that what really attracts people to Twilight, they don't understand any of this, what I'm sharing with you. They don't know about the dreams. They don't know about the knowledge of good and evil. They don't know their Bibles. They don't really know the blood of, about the blood of Jesus. Most people that get into Twilight, all they know is that Robert Pattinson is really handsome and that Isabella Swan is cute and they like the story. They get into the story of the good vampires fighting the bad vampires. That's, that's basically the appeal. 
And I often tell people, you know, that story, as Scott talked about this morning, is really just not real. You know, there's, a, there's fantasy and there's reality. In the real world, it's just not there. Uh, these two young people actually have, have fallen in love. They've been dating for quite a while, and I, I think they got married. I don't know if anybody can correct that or not, but I'm pretty sure that they finally did get married. And anyway, I know that when they were dating, Robert Pattinson was uh, you know, not really acting the way he should be acting he was going around and hanging out in the bars and getting involved with other girls. And Isabella, uh, not Isabella, Kristen Stewart confronted him one day, and this was in the news reports. And she said to him, she said, uh, you know, if you're going to be with me, you've got to stop doing that. And his response was, hey, I'm just being one of the guys. I was just being one of the guys. And she said, well, if you're, gonna, if you're just going to continue to be one of the guys, you're not going to be with me because I want a man who is loyal to a woman. And this, you know, boy that people think so highly of, he's just Superman, in the real world, he's just not that way. He's just a real guy, and he's a sinner. Just like Isabella Swan, she's a sinner. And they both need Jesus Christ, don't they? They both need the Lord. Robert Pattinson has also acknowledged that the Twilight series has a power in it that has affected his personality. He's also acknowledged that, that there's a power in these books that have affected him. And who knows what the ultimate result will be. And then I, you know, I, show, I show this slide and I talk to teenagers and I say, you know, the bottom line is that there is, there is a lover. There is a lover that is real. I tell teenage girls, I say, you know, the reality is you, you, you can't have Robert Pattinson anyway because he's just one guy. You just can't do it. It's, a, it's an illusion. The whole thing's an illusion. It's time for a reality check. Reality check. And the reality is that there is another lover that is, it's not, it's not a, he's not fantasy. He's not fiction. He's not just in a novel or a movie. He doesn't run around and just be one of the guys. There is another lover, and he is real. And that lover is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loves you, he loves me, he loves us all. And his love is, is real. And you can have that love. You know, why, why take fantasy when you can have reality? When Jesus comes, there's going to be a huge reality check all around the world. And people who have been immersing their minds in fantasy are all of a sudden going to realize this is reality. And they're also going to realize that Jesus Christ on the cross shed his blood for their sins. And the only way that anybody is going to get through that day is going to be if they have accepted him as Savior, turned away from their sins, and trusted in the power of the blood of Christ. And when the day comes, when Jesus finally comes, if they haven't done that, it's too late. It's too late. So now is the time for us to focus our attention on the right lover. Now is the time for us to see the right blood. Now is the time for us to respond to the truth that is in the Bible and to give our hearts to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that we need. I don't need 
I don't need anything else more than I need Jesus Christ. I've, I've, I've studied all these things. I've prayed about them. I've done my homework. But I've come out of this knowing that Jesus is the one that I need. And I'm excited about the Lord. Uh, I'm excited about Jesus coming. I'm excited about going to heaven. I was talking to my kids the other day about what it's going to be like when Jesus comes and taking a seven-day trip to the New Jerusalem. And Seth was saying, Daddy, are we going to, uh, are we going to visit planets on the way up there? You know, and we're going to, are, we need to, are we going to need a space suit? And little Abby said, Daddy, will we have wings? And when we get up there, will we have to give up our wings? And that's a five-year-old. But they're excited about heaven. Let me share with you one more thing, and then we'll, we'll pray together. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker not long ago as I was driving in Priest River, Idaho. And the bumper sticker at the back of somebody's car said, I need someone really bad. And then, and then the last line said, are you really bad? Can you believe that? And I thought about that and I thought, you know, that's the way the world is. People, you know, they may not want something all bad, but they do want some bad. They want a little bit of bad. They want the Edward Cullen, who's a good guy, but he's got some bad in him. That's what attracts a lot of women. You know, they, they like the good, but they like the bad too. They want some of that bad. And he, I told my son that. I said, Seth, I, I saw this bumper sticker. And he decided on his own to write his own little, uh, little response to that. His own little saying. This is from an eight-year-old. 5.25.13 by Seth. It says, I need someone good. Are you good? I need someone who knows the Bible. Do you know the Bible? If not, read it. That's what he said. <laughs> Hallelujah. My son's not perfect, and our family's not perfect, but our, our kids are learning. They're learning the Bible. And this is the time when we need to give up the good combined with the evil. Let's give it up. Put it on the altar. Lay it down. Lay it aside. You know, all of this Hollywood mesmerizing entertainment, you know, it's, the devil is behind a whole host of it. And pretty soon, reality's going to hit... And if you really want to live forever and ever and ever and ever, you need Jesus Christ. Vampires don't live forever. Vampires take blood. They drink it. Jesus gave his blood for you. Which one is, is a, better, a better option? So are you ready to pray? Let's pray. We've got about a few minutes before we're done. So if you can, if it's too difficult for you, just stay seated. But if you're able to wiggle a little bit and to get down on your knees, let's pray. Let's just kneel down and pray and talk to the Lord. And, and I just want to encourage all of us as a group to lay everything on the altar. We need to lay it all down. Time is too short. There's too much at stake. This is not a game. This is not a movie. This is the real thing. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, Father, here we are before you on our knees or sitting down. Lord, you know what's happening in this world. You know the subtleties of the serpent trying to lead and mold a whole generation of young people away from Jesus Christ and the cross and the blood that Jesus shed to wash us clean. 
And ultimately, Satan is trying to lead us away from love, from real love that can satisfy our hearts your love and God to live with you forever in a beautiful world where there's no more sin, where Satan is gone, there's no more sickness, there's no more depression or heartache or disease, but we're going to be in a beautiful, bright world. God, please, I pray for everybody here that we'll all say right now in our hearts, Lord, I surrender my whole life to you. Jesus, I surrender my whole life to you. Please, God, come in. Forgive us for our sins. Wash us in your blood. Help us to stand up tall for God in the midst of this crazy world. To stand up for God, for Jesus, for the Bible, for the truth. Not to live in a virtual reality, but in the real world. Help us, Lord, to to seek that which is good. Not good mixed with bad. But the real good that comes from you. Lord, please into our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.